I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Yep, we have made it to chapter 2 now. And uh, we're working our way through the book. Um, These verses amount to the conclusion of the introduction of Paul to this letter. Uh, When you open your Bible... Oh, that's right. Some of you don't have a Bible. Well, if that's you, would you please look at the back of the pew in front of you? And there you'll see a book that's black and it says Holy Bible. Guess what? It's our gift to you. Please, we want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. So if you don't have one, take it. It's yours. And now even you can turn in your copy of the Word of God to Colossians chapter 2, where we will read verses one through five. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your word abides forever. And so we can take confidence in it. We thank you that you have given it to us. Lord, grant that we would cherish it, and respond to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in this book, which is about the supremacy of Christ over all things, Paul is really going to be driving home, what does a life look like when it's lived in light of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency? If Christ is supreme, if he really is sufficient, then there are some necessary outworkings in our life. There are some practical implications of that supremacy for us. And now in this introductory section, which began in chapter 1, verse 1, and concludes with the final words of verse 5, that's why verse 6 begins, therefore... He's getting ready to launch then into some practical things that are built upon all this foundational stuff. What Paul has done thus far is celebrate in in beautifully majestic language the, the surpassing greatness of the Son of God in whom we have redemption. And so a couple weeks ago we looked at how he gives us a primer of gospel truths. And then last week, he applied it to us individually for our salvation. But then, right here, 
as he concludes this little section where he's talked about his ministry, he, he takes it one step further. So he's talked about Christ's supremacy over everything, and then the gospel generally, and then he applies it to us individually, but now he's going to be talking about the importance of the body of Christ for us. So there's a flow here, going from the abstract to the concrete, from the general to the specific. And so we see in these verses this this incredible mystery that he connects our togetherness with our soundness. And for us, that's kind of weird because it's a foreign concept that our soundness is in any way connected to our togetherness. That's very un-American, un-Texan. But it's still true. You see, in Scripture, something is very clear. And that is, Christianity is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. I know, I know, we have a way of turning individual sports like like golf into into a team activity, but but really golf is an individual sport. Okay, it's just you and that ball, and you may play against someone, but but they're not moving in direct opposition to you the way they are in, say, basketball or football, where there's a team of people who are being directly opposed by another team of people. But Christianity is not an individual sport as much as we may want it to be, as much as we think it is. It's not. It's a team sport. And I think that has direct bearing in our culture. Go back 60 years and C.S. Lewis in his fiction work of The Great Divorce He talked about how, it's a story about these people, it's a fictional work about these people from from hell, they get to go on a day trip to heaven, but but in, in, and they hate it in heaven, by the way, in in this story if you've ever read it, they hate it there, because it's everything that they don't like. Now in, in, in C.S. Lewis's depiction of hell, it's this, everybody's incredibly inward focused, focused on themselves. And when you take away the image of God and and common grace that God has given to the world that we can even have civilization, all you are left with is the raw pursuit of self. And so that's what hell is in his book. And instead of, in popular culture, you know, we tend to think that hell's the happening place. You know, heaven is where the boring people sitting around having church service, but hell's where the, you know, where the rock concerts are at. It's where, it's where, you know, people are partying. And that's not true. But in C.S. Lewis's depiction, everybody is so inward focused, oriented towards the pursuit of self that they actually move continually away from other people. So it's this continual furtherance from others. And we think, oh, that's fiction, that's work. Look at how fragmented our society has become and is becoming. Where everybody has their own little world. 
their own private community. We yearn for the reality of community, but we are utterly incapable of it. Multiple, even secular writers have written about a generation that is incapable of love. We're not talking about the the sensation of, of affection. We're talking about love as a committed sacrificing for the good of someone else. A whole generation of people incapable of it because they have been conditioned from infancy to pursue self above all others. So even in our places of community, we sit there as isolated individuals alone together. Look at our smart devices that make our lives better, supposedly. I still can remember back to the days before my smartphone, and I don't remember being bad off. I remember, I remember my memory was better. I actually had like 50 phone numbers memorized. I, I think I have one or two memorized anymore. Anyway, whatever. I'm better off because of my smartphone, right? But look at what the effect of social media has had on real relationship as we're continually drawn into a device, to an e-digital world where people are able to project an image of themselves that is oftentimes far from the reality. We are continually fragmented and alone and isolated. And, And that has made its way even into the church where you have a bunch of people who, there's always been Christians who, who don't like the institutional church. And, you know, I'm just going to have me and Jesus in my Bible. But the advent of social media platforms has really breathed some fire into that, under, into that because now we have an environment where you can sit home and listen to your favorite preacher and easily gain access to books that scratch whatever little itch you have from whatever little perspective you have, you can find it. And thus we're told, and told again and over again, that community really is not that essential. And Paul begs to differ. To a community-less world, we are here set forth with this profound truth that if we're going to reach and attain the full assurance There's something about us being knit together in love that's going to get us there. The implication is, if we are not together, we're not getting there. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? Well, let's look at it. I want to to, to underscore this. I I want to actually work this passage in reverse. Okay, we're going to start at verse 5 and work backwards. Okay, and the reason we're going to do that is when you see verse 1, you know, it's... It's stereotypical Paul, all intensity all the time. You know, I'm struggling. And when, you, when people do character studies of Paul, uh, especially from, uh, from higher critical backgrounds, they, they have a pretty negative view of the man. He was just intense all the time. He's, he's a zealous, uh, he, he, he's, he's a fundamentalist. He's, he's, just a, he's just a zealot. And just really unpleasant. Is what, is, what, is what the caricature is. But he's zealous for Jesus and for us, and there's a reason why he's so intense all the time. Because he knows he's on borrowed time, and he's got a mission to fulfill, 
And there ain't no time to sit around and have a cold one when people's souls are literally on the line in his mind. So I want you to understand why he's so intentionally and intensely focused on this. And we're going to start at verse 5. Verse 5 is, is the desired outcome product. He delights that even though he's not there, he's able to rejoice with them to see, he's seeing through the eyes of faith, their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Okay, those are both, he, imagine he's, he, he's, a, he's a commanding officer and, the, and his military unit is arrayed before him for inspection. And everyone is looking sharp. Everyone's lined up the way they're supposed to be. All the uniforms are nicely pressed. All of the awards and badges are all in the right places. The shoes are shined. Everyone's haircut's looking good. Okay, so he's impressed by what he sees. Everyone is in order. And the military motif in the New Testament is huge precisely because the Greco-Roman world was so militaristic. But there's something to be said here because you don't even have to have served in the military to understand that in the military, the team, the unit is everything. If there's ever an organization that that seriously understands that you're only as good as your weakest link, it's the military. Sports teams, yeah, but it's just sports. In the military, people die if the weakest link isn't on par with everybody else. So there's a seriousness here, and the outcome is that everyone is in order, everyone is firm, everyone is in their defensive position, everyone is making making offensive motion into enemy territory, and that's great. And why is he so rejoicing? Because of verse 4. There's a risk out there. Verse 4 teaches that there's a risk that, that they may be deluded into believing plausible arguments. So verse 5 is the source of rejoicing, that, that they're not being deluded, that they're actively on guard, and they're not just being defensive. Defensiveness is not, is not welcoming and nice. Defensiveness is kind of prickly. But they're actively making, making offensive forays into enemy territory, but the risk is still real. They may be deluded, which is to believe something that's not true. They may be deceived by plausible arguments. Now, folks, we all think we're smart. But here's the reality. There's always someone smarter. And virtually no lie that gets sold to you is going to be obviously a a fib. Most of the world's best lies or, or worst lies, depending, sound really good. And when it comes to spiritual type arguments... I make my living talking to people, preachers and teachers, and, and we're, we're, we work with words. And it's easy to spin words and, and make something that's not true sound not only true, but sound beautiful. It happens. Now, there were many plausible arguments that could delude them and, and, and steer them off course. Just as there are many plausible arguments out there that could steer us off course. I've heard a number of them over the course of my ministry. One of the most powerful arguments, 
plausible arguments that, that I hear people saying is that your feelings are a reliable indicator of what's right and wrong and good and bad. That your feelings are trustworthy. And it's not. Our feelings are wrong more often than they're right. If I feel like Jesus isn't enough, then that means he's not enough. Right? If, if, you know, I'm, if I'm coming to church and I'm doing this, but I'm not feeling it, then that must mean there's something lacking. Right? Otherwise I wouldn't be feeling this way. And, you know, there's so much wisdom out there in the world. And, oh man, they, they're, they're smiling in those TV pit commercials. And they're smiling on the book covers. And, and look at how well they're dressed on the billboards. And, oh, they're, they're, they're so happy. Surely they have some of the wisdom that I'm lacking. And so off we go, following our feelings. There's another plausible argument out there that, that God is impressed with any and every sincere religious act. The religion of Oprah. If long as I'm sincere, then God accepts it. God understands that I'm not perfect and so whatever I do is good enough. One can be Rightly spiritual without knowing Jesus. Oh, I heard this a lot in the military, and I'll probably hear it more even outside. Oh, you know, I, I worship the Lord as I'm in nature. No, they're not, they're not worshiping Jesus. They're just communing with the force or something. There's no right spirituality. There's no genuine spirituality apart from Christ. We can atone or make up for past sins by showing proper contrition and living a changed life. Really? That makes up for sins? By just feeling sorry and doing things differently? Do you, do you see, in, in all of these, there, there's some, well, I thought some of that's true. If we live rightly, if I live right, God will reward me with fame, wealth, prosperity, happiness, health. You know how much guilt people have? Do you know how hard people are trying because they think that God owes them something? Here's another one that's pretty common. I can sustain a vibrant Christian walk without other Christians. I don't need you guys. Sure, it's nice, but I don't need you guys. And that's probably the most dangerous amongst Christians because it's hard to demonstrate the immediate necessity of other people for our spiritual walk. And so we therefore think that because it's hard to demonstrate the Immediate necessity that it's therefore untrue. But yet, man, oh man, I have encountered so many people 
who have bought into that line that they do not need other Christians to be faithful, to have a vibrant Christian walk. And guess what happens when they have bought into that? They just drift off to sea. Brothers and sisters, if, if specifically there are some in here who are, who are visiting home from college, let, let, me, let, me, let me really drive it home. You need a church family. You must be a part of the assembling of the brothers and sisters. You must have a home in which to be anchored or else you risk just drifting off. It's not that you will find some philosophical argument that will convince you of the infeasibility and untenability of the faith. You'll just get busy. And other things will fill your schedule. And before long, oh yeah, I remember back when I used to go to church. And you think, oh, I'm happy now. I don't need it. And before long, you've abandoned your hope. Now, we need each other. Why? Because it's the key to avoiding being deluded. Look at the second part of verse 2. To reach the being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance. Of God's mystery, which is Christ. All right. So the way to avoid being deluded is to reach full maturity, full assurance of his wisdom and truth, the mystery that is Christ. So when we've come to Jesus, we have come to the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. Okay, there, there is no wisdom and knowledge that's greater, that's more profound, that's more helpful, that's more life-sustaining, that's more life-giving. In Christ is everything. Now the problem is, is when we're by ourselves, we can think easily that I've read a book and I understand it. We can say that, oh, I've read my Bible cover to cover, so I'm a master. Of divinity. And I understand it all. I have the head knowledge. No, you don't. You see, coming to Christ is in a small way. This is a pale, poor analogy, but I'm going to use it nonetheless. It's like going to Mammoth Cave. Who's ever been to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? All right. Mammoth Cave is the world's, supposedly the world's longest cave system. It begins with this just big crack in the earth. You go in. And there's these big cavernous rooms. And there's these, these big cave offshoots. But yet, it gets tight. And it gets narrow. And if going in an MRI tube gives you the claustrophobia, you don't want to go in there. There's been over 400 miles of explored cave. And it goes on and on and on. Coming to Christ is kind of like that. 
We come to the, to the precipice and we encounter the Son of God in the flesh. The mystery of the hypostatic union. That there's one person, two natures, undivided, indivisible. What? How is that? A mystery. The uncreated creator killed. How is that? And you think that you can plumb the depths, but yet the further you go, the further you see, there's still more to go. And why is that? Because of the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. He is infinite. And we are finite. And the finite cannot fully grasp the infinite. And so everything we know about God is because He has revealed it to us. But, but yet, we should not delude ourselves into thinking that we can ever say that we have fully explored and dissected God so as to fully get our arms wrapped around Him and understand Him. He's incomprehensible. And so because of that, you can always explore. You can always Dig in. You can always dive. There's more to learn all the time. But guess what? It takes other people to help us out. You're a fool if you go very far into a cave like Mammoth Cave by yourself. A very big fool. We need each other. We need to be encouraged. We need to be equipped. And so that brings us to the team effort. We need to be knitted together in love. And to me, that reminds me of the mystery of the relationship between flame and wind. Okay? Each of us has the experience of of trying to light a match and even a small breeze. And it goes out. But we're about to hit fire season out west. And once a fire gets going, I mean, they'll talk about these 60-mile-an-hour winds coming in off the ocean. And a 60-mile-an-hour wind doesn't put it out at all, does it? It just fans it. So there's this mystery to me. How is it that fire and wind, in one context, totally the, the wind totally snuffs out the fire, but... but But yet there's another context in which a huge amount of wind actually increases the fire. That's a mystery to me. But that's Christian people. If you are by yourself without someone to encourage you, without someone to hold you accountable, without someone to help you, without someone to provoke you to love and good works, you will go out but yet if you're together my goodness you can withstand the flames and in fact troubles and trials only make you stronger and that's amazing because the threats are ever present they've said that one of the worst forms of punishment is solitary confinement It can drive a person literally mad because we were made for other people. And when struggles happen and the bad diagnoses come, if if you don't have a support system, you, you have a hard time coping. 
That is why God made togetherness. Human beings, man, we, we can be inspired to the, the most incredible heights of heroism, to personal sacrifice, but it's always when done in the context of helping out some other person. People don't just give themselves for no reason. But relationships with other people, that's what inspires these, these guys to go and jump on a grenade to save their buddy because they love each other. That's why we need each other. Relationships in the church are not optional. They're necessary. That's why we do things like have 40th anniversary picnics. That's why we have food after, after the service so that way we can sit around and, and talk and build relationships so that we can have shared common experiences so that when life gets rough, we have each other. Without each other. What do we have? Just my own thoughts bumbling about in my head. And we serve as, as this, this holy provocation to fight the good fight. When people go off by themselves, man, they become weird. And I, I know they have that around here. I get it. But, man, I remember this, this hunting trip I took to northern Alaska to near the Arctic Circle. And we would stop at some various places to get gas or to get some snacks or whatever. And we would bump into some of these these true, like, mountain people, you know, they'd, they'd left the world behind, you know, all that stuff. And they're weird. I mean, it's like the aloneness has done something to their brain. And that's, and, they're, and I, a couple of these people were, were claiming to be Christians, but they had some really weird, what-in-the-world views. But that was kind of just a picture of, what happens when we're alone? Just ruminating on our own thoughts. We need each other. So we need this church home. We need this church family. We need to be knit together in love. Because no one invests themselves in others. No one trusts other people when they don't have relationship. So you build the relationship, you get knit together in love, so that you're able to have the foundation when stuff happens to have the support system, the encouragement system. So that gets us to verse 1. That's why Paul is so intense. That is why he's literally pouring himself out for the churches. Because we need each other, but it's counterintuitive. Because we're tempted to think all we need is just my Bible and Jesus. But I'm very convicted by the fact that when he talks about attaining the maturity and full assurance of, of all that wisdom and knowledge that Christ has for us, he doesn't say, oh, I, my hope is that you guys will sit in the corner and read your Bible and attain full assurance. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, I hope that you'll sit there and read John Calvin and listen to the latest greatest preacher. that your hearts will be knit together in love. You are not going to reach full maturity unless you are part of a body where you are pouring into other people and other people are pouring into you. 
And so Paul labors tirelessly with every ounce to build up the church and help them undersee the importance of the body. That's why most of Paul's letters are about church life. He has a couple sentences here and there about families. But almost everything is about church life. Because the church is where Christians are made and nurtured. It's where you have opportunities to serve. It's where you have opportunity to become provoked and angered by other Christians that that aren't of your blood and that you have to work with. So it helps you get over stuff. Oh, brothers and sisters, would that we, like Paul, understand the importance of the body. I need you. And you need me. And you need that person to your left and to your right. That person that you think, oh, I wouldn't miss that person if they left. Hmm, I almost wish they would. (laughs) No. Even that person. You need them here. You need them in your life. That's why God has brought us together. So, let's hold hands. Let's line up in proper order with good martial discipline. And let's defend each other. Let's defend the faith. Let's not shoot our wounded. Let's nurture them back to health. And let's make offensive forays into enemy territory. And let's take prisoners. Our prisoners are people set free. And let's welcome new brothers and sisters. And in so doing, that's how the kingdom of God gets built. We continually bring people in. Oh, what a glorious thing. So like Paul, we celebrate the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. He's supreme over the universe. He's supreme over the gospel. He's supreme over our individual salvation. And he's supreme over our collective being the body of Christ, the church. And from that foundation, now Paul is prepared to spring forward with some very practical things. So we'll tune back in in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you sent your son, that he's supreme over all things, and that you have in your wisdom ordained that our spiritual growth should be contingent upon and connected to togetherness with other believers. Lord, help us to lay down our guard, to trust you in the process, and to invest ourselves in others, and to allow others to invest themselves in us. To not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, to not think that we're too smart, or too quick-witted, or too important. Help us to honor and cherish even our weakest members, that we might indeed strengthen and encourage them, give them the material support they need to be a successful part of this army, the body of Christ. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen.